Book of Psalms, we're going to actually pick up again on Psalm 139. So if you want to go there and take a look. Remember, we were talking about, we were in the Psalms, we are talking about the, the standard quote-unquote Psalms, which we call the Messianic Psalms, and then of course the Shepherd Psalms. And we're talking about the Psalms right now that, that actually show that Jesus, Messiah, had to come as the Son of Man. We talked about those. Now we're talking about, the, we're in the Psalm, one of the Psalms, that talks about Jesus coming as the Son of David. Okay? And remember, and I said to you, I would go over it again this week because I hope if you were here last week, you thought about what I was saying. Because don't forget, I review the audio because I record it every week and I edit the audio. And then I realize when I read it in the audio how I've got to repeat some things because I just want to make sure you understand where I'm coming from. Because even I have to think about it. I have to think a lot about it. And so Psalm 139 seeks to show that Jesus is coming as the son of David, very, very prophetic, but you have to look at it. And I want to review with you again the problem I had in understanding, and I want to alert you again, because as you're reading scripture, keep in mind the translation that you're using. And even if it's an excellent translation, or even if it's the King James, which is the authorized version, which is one of the most faithful, in many opinions, as one, one of the most faithful English translations, you have to understand that everything is translated. What I mean by that is this. God gave the scriptures through the Hebrews, through the Jews. And what language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is, I believe, the language that God used to create the universe. We talked about what Hebrew is and how a special language it is, okay? When you try to convert a thought from a one language to another, it suffers, doesn't it? And we, I talked to you last week about Charles Spurgeon in his book, The Treasury of David, which, which speaks to that. I'm going to read that again because I want you to see that. Everybody hear of Charles Spurgeon? Yes. He's a very, very good expositor of Scripture. But the point, the big point I want to make to you as we have started going and as we go, especially in the book of Psalms, although this applies to every book, but as we move forward to the book of Psalms, I'm having this trouble translating what God is showing me and showing you if, you, if you read it and study it, translating it into, not translating, articulating it properly is what I'm saying. And here's the point. Just as much as, and you and I can determine that it's difficult to translate something from one language into another language and keep the fullness of the meaning, of the meaning you understand what I'm saying, right? Okay? And Charles Spurgeon speaks to that here. It is even harder to, for us to understand that the thoughts that come from God's mind in the dimensions or in the reality that is outside of these four dimensions of physical time space that we live in, right? When God gave those thoughts to the prophets and to the writers of Scripture, it loses something in the translation because it's coming from an eternal mind who has a grasp on eternity itself. Does any human being understand any of that? But yet through those human beings, he gives us the facts. One of the main facts is that he is a triune God, right? Elohim, a plural singular. That makes no sense to the human mind. But he gave it to them, and they tried to articulate it in the Hebrew language, which then, of course, gets translated. But even they could not possibly give true justice to the full meaning of what a triune God is. That they're so tightly integrated that there's no separation between them. You and I can't fathom that, can we? By the same token, 
the deep meaning in the Psalms, especially, and as we get into the pro prophetic Psalms, and that's why I'm showing you the, the struggle I'm having trying to get the ideas here to show you how the nuances play and how when you read something, especially in these Messianic Psalms, when David's talking about how he's in pain and in suffering, right? And yet you have to even begin to look at the fact that these are also the groanings of the Messiah who came as fully human. You see what I'm saying? And what I tried to show you last week, which is the most difficult part, is to have you understand, because I can't understand it, but I know I can't understand it, and, and that's why I know it's a lot deeper. The requirement, the absolute requirement, that Jesus Christ be absolutely human. Otherwise, none of this would work. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I talked to you last week of who was the first king of the world. Adam. And he was fully and who will be the last king of the world? And he was fully. And who is the king that Satan is trying to install, the great counterfeiter, as the last king of the world? The Antichrist, who is fully, but having Satan as God the Father. And he will be the Christ in that trinity. You see what I'm saying? That's why I said to you, the Antichrist doesn't just mean he's against Christ and everything Christ stands for. He is the antithesis. Like Satan is the antithesis of God the Father in his satanic trinity, right? And the Antichrist is the antithesis of the Jesus Christ of the trinity of God. So there's one more left. The Holy Spirit in the trinity of God is whom in the satanic trinity the antithesis of the Holy Spirit. Anybody remember? Who is going to be assisting the Antichrist in the end times? The false prophet. The worldwide religion. Which Christians, if you think about it with the Holy Spirit, Christians mistake the Holy Spirit for religion, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Pomp and circumstance and religious look and feel like Easter and Christmas and all of these pomp and circumstances in the Catholic religion and other religions, even Baptists. If you look at the laws and bylaws of some of these religions, that it's works-based, that smacks of religion, right? But it also smacks of the Holy Spirit and how he operates. It's wrong, but you know what I'm saying. What I'm trying to wrap up here is the, 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 the translation. Remember, just keep this in your mind as we go, please. You and I are privileged. We have an honor to even begin to look at Scripture and begin to understand anything. So if you look at it that way, remember that you do not understand everything. And the more you learn, like I said last week, how did I put it last week? The more I'm learning, especially about the Psalms and the nuances, it seems like I'm taking one step forward and two steps back. Because the less you know, the more you think you know. There are plenty of people who think they're good and they're fine. They know enough about Scripture because they go to church and hear a sermon once a week. Great. You think you're doing good? Let me show you the Scriptures and start reading in 2 Samuel or 1 Kings. How about Revelation or Daniel? Have you ever looked at those books? Oh, yeah, I've read them. I, matter of fact, I talked to somebody um, who's just becoming a Christian. They're just starting. They're not sure yet. But this person actually told me that in their life they've read the Bible from cover to cover two times. Two times but they don't understand a thing. They can't. So even if you just have something, a little bit of understanding, like the concept of this triune God, be thankful because you wouldn't even know that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit and if you weren't truly converted. 
So build on that foundation. And it's amazing what God will show you and then try to teach it or try to tell somebody about it. It's going to be difficult, if not impossible. That's what I'm saying to you. So the translation from God's mind and the eternal mind into a human mind and then finally on paper or parchment in their culture, which is many, many decades and years and hundreds of years separated from our culture and then translated from their language to our language, it's a wonder we know anything at all. And that's what Spurgeon is saying, and that's what I wanted to bring to you. So having beat that horse, let's read this again. The one passage, the one verse that I'm talking about that talks about really deeply about Jesus being in the line of David. One, Psalm 139, verse, uh, we'll say 15, but actually it's 16, okay? And then I'm going to read you what Spurgeon wrote about it. Psalm 139, verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Now, here's my point. If you're David and you're reading this as a human being or you're writing this, or let's say you're reading this as David, a human being, wrote it, which is what you would do, right? What secret place is he talking about? When I was made in the secret place. The womb. The womb. Right. Very simple. Pretty straightforward. Right? He's saying here, my frame was not hid from you when I was made and when I was in my mother's womb. Didn't he say that? Who else did God say that to? Actually, Jeremiah said it, right? He said, you knew me while I was in my mother's womb. So we know, and we know the concept from the New Testament of predestination. So we know kind of how all that works, right? But that's not the tough part. You see, that's not the part you have to think about. What you have to think about is looking at this as if Jesus Christ is saying this. Because if you do that, like we did last week, you will see that it all fits. When he came in his humanity, he was saying these things. So now read this from the standpoint as if Jesus is saying this, and I want you to now to define the secret place. Let's read it again from Jesus' standpoint as if he's saying this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. What does that mean? Now, you have to understand that the secret place is eternity prior. The secret place is the unrevealed name of the God of the Old Testament who was... Who was the God of the Old Testament? Did, was he named as such in the Old Testament? Was he revealed? Did he reveal himself as such in the Old Testament? But he was already Jesus Christ because I told you if God does have command of the timeline and everything is present, he had the nail prints and he had the, print, the, the, the wound in his side in the Old Testament times. See, this doesn't make sense to the human mind. I want you to think of time. If God presides over time because he's always, if you notice in Scripture, talking about everything as if it's already done, how can he possibly do that if he doesn't know the end from the beginning? If he is not, who did Jesus say he was? I am Alpha and Omega. I am, I am. What's his name? I am the beginning and the end. He is time. Because time did not exist as we know it in eternity. You see, I'm trying to give you the eternal point of view from these Psalms because we need to think of it from this standpoint if you've never thought of it before as we move forward. So looking at Jesus saying, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now, he wasn't actually woven together in the depths of the earth, right? But neither was David. So what does that actually mean? It means that when he was woven together, David's idea, part of the earth or from the earth, the dust of the ground, that kind of thing, right? But Jesus in his humanity had to have the human 
DNA. By the way, did you know that DNA is also called the book of life? Did you know that? By human beings, by scientists, by Sir Francis Crick, one of the co-discoverers of DNA. Why is it called the book of life? Those who know it is called the book of life. Why would they call it that? Anybody know? Let's say again. It's instructions. Right. You know how you have a recipe? It's like a recipe. All you need to make something delicious, and I don't know how to cook, so you'd have to ask my wife or one of you ladies here, maybe one of you men here. You need a couple of basic things if you're going to cook a great dish. You need the recipe. You need the instructions. You also need the tools, and you also need the ingredients. But the instructions themselves, are they the ingredients? But the ingredients are the things that if you merge it together with the instructions and follow the instructions doing manipulation with those ingredients, you will end up with this dish. And then you can properly plate it and serve it and everybody will say it's great. Not if I baked it, don't made it, you can say it's great. But thank you, I don't create life either. But God does. That is what the book of life also means in heaven. That is why your body can be resurrected. Because you are your DNA. Would you say that you are your DNA? No? Anybody say no? Everybody has to say yes. You are your DNA. And DNA is every piece of information that makes you you. The only thing it is not is the ingredients, right? And what are the ingredients in your body? I don't want all of the scientific terms. What are the ingredients? What are you made from? What is, how does scripture put it though? The dust of the ground. What do you think that means? It loses something in the translation, doesn't it? <laughs> You're not made from sand or soot or soil, are you? Are you a plant? You are, made from, you are made from the elements that the physical earth is made up of. And by the way, the physical earth is made up of elements that can be found throughout the physical universe. So you are made of the stuff that everything else is made of in this physical universe. That's why your body is nothing special in and of itself. It's the code. It's what makes you a human being and the mind of man that God puts in you. So what already has eternal life? Like, this, like the Psalms. Your mind. But God made a machine made out of the physical things of this earth so that you could put your mind in it and it works and it's a human being. But when you get your resurrected body, where's your mind then? It's in, a, it's in a Cadillac versus the uh, Yugo that it's in now. <laughs> do, do you see what I'm saying here? I'm trying to show you by abstract what God does. And if you think this way, now when you think of you're made from the dust of the ground, doesn't it give you a different value point, a different understanding? When God says your name is written in the book of life, that's the book of life of salvation. But there's also a book of life that if you look if you ever looked at the book of Enoch, it's, he talks about being shown a book of life. And he also is shown by the angels that there are cords, that the angels are... I'm not going to get into all of this now. <laughs> you should read the book of Enoch. Because Jude talks about the book of Enoch. It was, I told you, is a documented fact in the scripture that they looked at the book of Enoch as truth. Okay? And if you have the book of Enoch, if you don't, it's on my website. The point is, is if you look at this just as a historical reference, we don't say it's scripture, right? We never say it's on par with scripture. But as a historical reference, he asks the question because he sees the angels as they're giving him a tour of the earth and, and certain things, and he sees the tree of life, right? Now remember, Enoch lived. He was the seventh from Adam, right? So even Adam was still alive when Enoch 
was walking with God and was translated, but he was going through all this. And these angels are running with these cords. It's a rope. Now a rope is a twisted set of cords, right? What does DNA look like? A double helix. It looks like a rope. So he's seeing these angels with these ropes and he's asking them what these are and basically the angel tells him these are the ropes of what is written in the book of life. If you didn't understand the science of today, you'd have a hard time understanding what he meant. How's that for being made from the dust of the ground? How's that for being made and having the book of life? So let's go back to Jesus Christ. He had to be what? Fully human, which means his DNA had to be exactly human. The concept of his eternal body now, there's probably a DNA type that defines a divine body, would you say? There's got to be some information about what it is, how it works. We don't know what that is, but we have to say probably it's some kind of DNA, something that is an information technology system that defines the machine or defines the body, and then it, whatever stuff exists in eternity outside of these four dimensions where all of these physical elements are. So now, if knowing all of that, and I spent a lot of time trying to get your mind off of the physical and into the, the, where the physical merges with eternity. Do you see what I'm trying to do here? Once you understand more of that, you will get a better understanding. And I believe this is what actually Charles Spurgeon kind of had as inspiration. So let's go now to verse 16 of chapter 139. Yes. That's the point. The yes. Amen. And he had eternal life intrinsic. And there's no blood in his body like we have. There's no bone and sinew. You are 100% correct. And that's, that was the best way of trying to say what I'm trying to say. That's why Jesus Christ and his body, when he came back and people doubted and people saw him, who did they see? But before Jesus Christ got this resurrected body that he had, he was the Word. He was God. What is, what's the genealogy in the book of John? Which proves out of the four things Messiah needed to be, right? There are four Gospels. Why are there four Gospels? Because there are four qualifications for Messiah. And the fourth Gospel is the book of, and that shows his genealogy back to, and only God. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Spokesman. There was nothing made, but anything that was made was made by him. Nothing that was made was not made by him, or however you want to put it. It's a double negative, but you know what I'm trying to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, and in the Trinity, and He became, so you need to know. That's what we're talking about. If you know that, and you know that these Psalms are prophetic in that nature, because they point to, everything points to Jesus Christ. You, now understanding that, let's read it from that standpoint. Again. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, now, let me ask you this question. If we're looking at this from David's point of view, when he says your eyes, who would David have been talking about? Jesus, or the God, the God who created him, correct? Very simple. If now you read this from the standpoint of Jesus Christ coming as a human being, now you read it, your eyes saw my unformed body, who would he be talking about? That's right. God is a father. What makes a man a father? 
That's right. If you do not have children, are you a father? Why do you think Jesus Christ had to be the son of someone who was not a father until he created a son? You see how? Say again. That's right. That's why if you look at Adam and the rest of humanity from Adam, we are now a layer of abstraction separated from God. Because where we used to be children or sons of God, sin came into the picture and separated the relationship. And this son was the only sinew that could reattach the relationship. But until that took place in the timeline, remember what Scripture says about Jesus, he came at, quote-unquote, just the right time. So time is very important because time is the thing that affects God's plan. Eternity is a single instant in, in time, basically. It's, it always existed. It never fails. It never didn't exist. Right? Where we in time never sit in the present. We're always moving toward the future. You never actually are in the present in this time space. Think about it. So thinking of that, your eyes saw my unformed body. Now, before the Word became Jesus Christ, that resurrected Jesus Christ's body was not formed yet. When did he actually receive this resurrected body? As When was it actually, quote-unquote, created? If you think about things in the context of a timeline. If, say, say again? Yeah, but I'm talking about, you're right, but I'm trying to localize it into a timeline. Now we're in time. Remember, he had to be trapped in time after the third day because he had the physical form of a full human being just like us he did not have his resurrected body just like you don't and I certainly don't look at this thing <laughs> and I'm speaking only for myself thank you very much hey my wife says that to me dude you've been talking to her she's still married to me so oh, I don't even know what to say about that that hurt me to the quick you know, one man saying that to a man is one thing, but when a woman says that to a man, that hurts. I'm teasing. That's how my wife controls. It's she not just that. the body that needs fixing. You're right. Amen to that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I can't remember what I'm talking about. But if he had a fully human body, which we know because he said he did, that means he didn't have his resurrected body until he... That's right. Until he died and shed this body. And what does it say about that? Jesus is the first fruits. Which means that when we see him, how will we be? How does the scripture say? When we see him, we will be like him. Will we be like him before he had his resurrected body? No, because we know that we will have a resurrected body. That's why if you look at what the rapture really is, it's the resurrection for us. Every Christian, whether you're alive and breathing in this thing we call the dust of the ground body, or you've already died. That's why you could have died and you're, you could have died in a nuclear explosion where your, every bit of your body and DNA would have been destroyed, correct? If you were at the epicenter of a nuclear bomb, would there be anything of your physical DNA left? No. So how would God resurrect your body? How? He has the recipe written in a, in a book with the DNA in it. Does this make sense to you? That's what Enoch was being told by those angels. Those angels were not talking about the book of life at that point. It was talked about in Enoch. By the way, Enoch actually saw Jesus Christ as the Son of Man because in that book he says at different places, and I saw one who was like the Son of Man, but he couldn't see him. He couldn't recognize him. And he actually asked the angel, who is this who looks like a human that's standing with God? The Ancient of Days. 
And he said, basically, we're not going to tell you that. Because if, if he was to be identified, then the Jews would have known their Messiah and he would not have had to die on that cross and he had to go through the whole thing. Do you see how all this plays out? That's why being human is so important. And that's why it's important for us to be able to know that and see it in the Psalms, especially this one. So having said all of that, let's continue. You see how much we talked about what? Two verses of the Psalms? You see how pregnant with these Psalms are? Yeah. Do you, um, God knowing everything that he did, do you believe that before Jesus came to experience um, humanity, that God actually understood what we as humans? That's a good question. And, and here's my only way I can even begin to answer it. I don't have an answer, but I'm going to answer it as from what I'm, I understand, which is limited like anybody else. Remember, every question that you and I ask are faulty, not that your question is faulty, but any question that you or I ask are faulty from the outgo is from the outset. Why? That's right. Exactly. By George, I think you're getting this. <laughs> We're looking at it as being locked in by in this four-dimensional time space, right? So the answer would be if you try to look at things in an abstract outside of this time space, I'd have to say yes, but I'd have to qualify it. Because at some point, Jesus was the Word and did not have this physical body yet, but they also knew from eternity past that one of them would have to come and experience being fully human to understand fully the human condition. Remember, God says that no one could see God and live. That means that He cannot possibly experience what it's like to be human because He created human beings. He's not made of the stuff of the ground. He's not made with a fleshly brain that runs this software called the mind of man and then merged with the mind of God. He already was God. He doesn't need any. He doesn't even know what that's like. But looking at what eternity is, I'd have to say, yes, from eternity past, this was already planned. But we don't, I don't, can't quantify that. At what time, so it's like, asking the same, it's like asking this kind of question. At what point did Jesus receive his resurrected body? Well, it depends. If you're looking at it from the timeline, we know that 2,000 <laughs> years ago, these things happened. And... The book of the Bible is written from the standpoint of physical human beings as instructed by God in this physical time space. So if you look at the Bible, it's a timeline. But that's why prophecy, that's why this whole business of Jesus Christ doesn't fit if you look at it from the timeline that it's presented in because it's on physical paper and physical words in physical human language as translated by physical human minds. It lacks a lot. That's why it's hard to comprehend that Jesus was already in his resurrected body in times past before he became Jesus Christ now. That's why he said, I am the beginning and the end. That's why he said to the, to the Pharisees, remember he said before Abraham was, did he say, uh, before Abraham was, I was the word and then, uh, um, and then something happened uh, or, or wait till after, after I leave and then you'll see, no. Because in the timeline, to make us understand, before Abraham was, he said, I am. Why would someone name themselves, I am? Remember when Moses asked, um, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? Did he say Yahweh? Did he say Jehovah? Did he say any of those? And by the way, we're going to talk about this, the seven names of God. And when we get up to it, he didn't say any of that. He said, I am. The word am. You know what that means? The present tense, the fully and always eternal present tense. You and I can't understand that because we never live in the present. 
But eternity, in my point of view, is always the present. It's the opposite of this time space. Does that make any sense to you? If we could stop in time and just live in a moment, which you can't do, but if you did, how long can you make that moment last? For eternity! So if the whole timeline is actually a moment in eternity, is the best way I can think of it, then it kind of works. Eternity is always the present. Everything that ever was, everything that ever is, and everything that ever will be, from alpha to omega, from the beginning to the end, is actually sort of like a circle, isn't it? Like the globe. You can go from east to west, right? But if you're always traveling from east to west, when do you start going the other way again? But there is an east and a west, but it's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because at some point, if you keep traveling east, you're going to go over the Atlantic, you're going to make it over to Europe, you're going to make it over to Israel, you know, go over to Africa, and then you're going to start going to the Asian countries and come around again, you're going to be back where you started, but you're still heading east. It doesn't make sense. Because if you take east and west and you lay it flat in a line, that's the way we think of it, right? Because we think that a line has a beginning and an end. And as soon as I go east enough to the end, I've got to have to travel west again, otherwise I can't, I can't go anywhere. But in reality, it doesn't work that way, does it? So if we can comprehend that, that's the beginning of comprehending the difference between eternity and the timeline. Eternity is a never-ending circle of present, in my point of view. So what, we travel to be in different moments? moments? You're always traveling. Well, your moment never, what? Can you say a nanosecond is a moment? How about a picosecond? Can you subdivide time smaller than that? Because if you think about it, if you could, that means at some point, time stops. If you could localize time down to something where you say it doesn't get any smaller than this, that means time stops, right? It's digital. It stops. It's either on or off, moving or not, right? That's why science, and I told you this, is understanding now that the interface between physical reality and the eternal structure that we're encased in or corralled in it gets very weird when you get to the end of where physical reality is. And that's why they're building these big reactors, like the CERN reactor I told you about. They're trying to look at particle physics, quantum physics, because they know that once you get into the activity of subatomic particles, things get really weird. I told you this. And you don't have to be a big scientist to understand this. Just understand that the scientists themselves are proving more than now than ever that science proves the existence of eternity. And they can't handle it. They're trying to prove, of, actually what they're trying to do is a way to master eternity by getting through the physical matrix that we live in and touch eternity. But of course, for their own purposes. And Satan, who told Adam and Eve, stick with me and I'll give you all the knowledge you want. What do you think they're after? What do you think Nimrod was after when he built that tower? He wasn't after God, he was after knowledge so that he could usurp God. Let's look at the psalm one more time. And then we'll talk about what, what Spurgeon, I believe, even though he didn't have all this detail, he understood. He understood something. God gave him something. Verse 16, your eyes, from Jesus' standpoint now, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You can look at that a number of different ways. What book? If it's the book of the DNA, it's your days of life as a human being from beginning to end, your DNA functioning and when it stops functioning, right? Okay. But look at also Jesus Christ came at the right time 
and was sacrificed at the right time. Would you say that God, his father, had already ordained all of the days of his life as a human being here? All of the days of his life when he would not have yet taken on the throne of David, but qualified for it because the throne of David, which is the physical throne on this earth, has to be throned by a human being. So the fact that he came as a human being above, above beyond his, his basic reason to save us in the universe, he also came so that he could qualify. Have one more point of the needed qualification for that throne. Okay. So, this is what Charles Spurgeon wrote about after all of that. How long did it take me to talk about two verses? And I hope you're getting this. This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote in The Treasury of David, his exposition of the Psalms. And this is back, I think, in the 1800s. Okay, listen. This, I'm going to quote now from what he said, and I want you to listen carefully. This verse, verse 16, which said, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days of my life were already predetermined by you. He says this. This verse is an exceedingly difficult one to translate, but we do not think that any of the proposed amendments are better than the rendering offered in the King James Version. Do you understand what he's trying? I know it's kind of 1800s English. English we don't kind of talk anymore. It's kind of, kind of actually more accurate than the English we talk about. He's saying, though, though this is difficult to translate, what we're saying is that there are no English versions better that even approach translating it properly than the King James Version. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, understanding that, listen to what his opinion is. The large number of words in italics in the King James Version, because, you know, King James, they, they put down things in italics, sort of like in the Amplified Version when they put it in brackets to amplify a thought. They're trying to tell you what it means. They're trying to tell you what they think it means. So he's saying, out of all the English translations that he knew about, there was none better than the King James Version to at least begin to understand what that verse really means when it's applied to Christ. Okay? But then he says... The large number of words in italics in the King James Version will warn, now listen to this, his words, will warn the English reader, that would be us, that the sense is hard to come at. What he's saying here, that the full understanding, even with the best of translation in English you can have, that the full understanding is hard to come at and difficult to express, and that it would, now listen to this, it would be unwise to found any doctrine upon the English words. That's what he said. What he's trying to say is, you can get close to really understanding this, but you'll never understand fully the humanity of Christ and his kingship, you know, his Davidic line by reading scripture. You, you will understand it, but you'll never understand it as deeply as you'd like to. Do you understand what he's saying here? I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Scripture's accurate. But he's saying it's, so, it's accurate but even with the authenticity and the accuracy and the inerrancy of it, you cannot ever get the full meaning of God's heart. What this really means. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Happily, there is no temptation to do so. The great truth expressed in these lines has by many been referred to the formation of the mystical body of our Lord Jesus. That's what we were just talking about. Of course, what is true of man, now listen to this, so this is, he's wrapping up basically with what I just went through with you, okay? Let me read that part again. Happily, there is no temptation to do so, which is, which is trying to get absolute doctrine from the words that you, that you read, because you can't really understand the depth, the real depth of it. But he's saying, happily, there should be no temptation to do so, 
The great truth expressed in these lines has by many been referred to in the, formal, the formation of the mystical body of our Lord Jesus Christ when he became a human. That's a mystery. It is. Of course, this is what he says, what, and I want you to get this, this is what wraps it up. Of course, which means naturally, what is true of man as man is emphatically, you hear the word, emphatically true of him, capital H, who is the representative of man. Whew. Does that make it clear? Maybe not. Maybe clear as mud. He also stated this. When he was writing this book, we're going to wrap up in a minute. By the way, it gets a little simpler after this, so don't worry about it. I just wanted to give you a real, real heavy-duty introduction to what the Psalms contain that no one can even, I can't, I'm having trouble with them. Okay? But not to take the book lightly. That's the point. So he said this at the beginning of his treasury of the book of Psalms. Okay? Now listen to this. The treasury of David. I'm going to quote here now. My prefish, my pre, my, hold on. <laughs> now I'm ready. My preface, my preface shall at least possess the virtue of brevity. You know what he's saying here? At least I'll be brief. <laughs> That's not a virtue I have, would you say? Listen to this, but listen to what he's saying about himself. He's humbled by trying to understand the depth, like it's always. The more you learn, the more you realize you do not know and you cannot comprehend. That's the dichotomy, which makes it worse for people who do not study Scripture because they think they know more than they do. That's dangerous. My preface shall at least possess the virtue of brevity, as I find it difficult to impart it to any other. The delightful stuff... Oh. The delightful study of the Psalms? The delightful study of the Psalms has yielded me boundless profit and ever-growing, ever-growing, never-stopping, ever-growing pleasure. Common gratitude constrains me to communicate others a portion of the benefit, which he's trying to share even a little bit of what he's gained. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do, and it's hard. So thankfully he can speak to me because he speaks a lot more eloquently than I do. He says, with prayer that it may induce them, now listen to this, it may induce them that he's trying to impart this stuff to, to search further for themselves. That I have nothing better of my own to offer upon this peerless book is to me matter of deepest regret. I feel the same way. That I have anything whatever to present is subject for devout gratitude to the Lord of grace. If I know anything at all, if you know anything at all, it's only because you have been specially chosen by God to know something. That's how important to really get a, a sense of what the truth of Scripture is. You and I deserve nothing. We should know nothing like, the, the, like these people out there. Now do you know how, how important it is to be ready to witness and give an answer? Those people are dying. What, is, what did God say in the Old Testament? My people are dying for lack of knowledge. Even if, just when you, be, remember when you became, first became a real Christian and you started reading things and it's like, I can't believe, I actually understand this. And this was New Testament, simple stuff that you and I would call simple. That's what he's saying here. That I have anything, whatever to present is a subject for devout gratitude to the Lord of grace. Now, he's, listen, this is what he says here. I have done my best, but... Conscious of many defects, I heartily wish I could have done far better. 
Amen. And then he writes his book. Would you say that that's a humble man? And if you ever looked at and ever heard of anything he's written, you will see that God has blessed this man with uncanny ability to interpret scripture. That's my personal goal. And that's why it's so discombobulating me when I land on something like these two verses that I can't figure it out and I'm doing the research and I find someone from the 1800s who can better lay it out than I possibly could in most modern day and age. All of the internet searching, did he have? No. All of the commentaries, all of the, all of the sermons you can get on radio and TV and all of the things about the book, did he have them? And look how good his answer was. I'm going to make one more example to you. E.W. Bollinger. Gospel in the Stars, written in the 1800s as well. The Treasury, now I know I have the book, you, we have the book, and that's what I used when I, a couple of years ago when I talked about how God laid everything, because did God give Adam and Eve the Bible? How did he teach them? That's right. We talked about how God had defined the constellations and talked about them to Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, so science didn't create the constellations. The point is this. He knew so much. Did he have modern science in the 1800s? Especially about space exploration? Especially about astronomy, the things that we know now? No. But we have those things now to help us understand that whatever God has given somebody, they do not need technology and science to understand. All they need is the will and the Holy Spirit. And if you and I have the Holy Spirit, we better sure have the will. That's why I said two weeks, was it last week? There are three translations that say in Scripture where it says, study to show yourself approved. If you look at a translation that isn't so good, it makes it sound like you um, should really study hard so that you understand it better, so that you can prove to God how smart you are. That's not what it says. It says you study like Charles Spurgeon did, which says what? I am so glad, glad for a, a grain of anything you give me, and I will treat it with the utmost respect as if it is life itself. And then the Holy Spirit will let you see more. So that's an introduction to the book of Psalms because it is a phenomenal book. It is unlike any other book. And you see how deeply we've studied some of the other books and we haven't even gotten to, to back to the history of Israel and, and the prophet's prophetic books yet, which we're going to really detail should the Lord tarry. So thank you for putting up with me today. This is a fire in my belly for the last couple of weeks here because uh, this has really been on my mind. I just can't fathom and yet I can begin to fathom, which makes it hurt more that I can't. And so to, to have Charles Spurgeon to commiserate with, I'm very thankful. And I want you to be thankful, too. You realize the limitations of your mind. <laughs> yeah. And that's when you begin to understand. Because if you, don't, if, you don't, yeah, if you don't look at Scripture and you don't study, even if you go you know, your normal job or your life, if you, don't give it, if you don't give it its proper due, you're going to think you know more than you do. Hey, I'm a good Christian. I read the Bible once in a while. I go to church. I hear these sermons. Hallelujah. I'm living the life. I can witness, I can talk about Jesus. Well, you know what? That's just the table stakes. Just the table stakes. And if that's all God wants you to do, then well done, good and faithful servant. But if you and I are not doing what God wants us to do because we're not that interested, we know enough, then you're going to miss the boat. And when you and I get there, what does God say about, about storing up treasures? Here? How do you store up treasures in heaven? How do you do it? How do you do it? Because one thing we do know for sure, we have been given this physical DNA for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to create the treasures in this body that can be stored up in heaven. Otherwise, when, you're, when you become a Christian, why not just take you home? Why go through all of this? Because you have to be in this physical DNA to serve God, to learn about Him, to learn what good and evil, the difference between them and how to live life and so forth. And then 
to be a master of what God gives you to do. And you don't need to work at it. Look at me. Honestly, I kid around about myself a lot. I never went to college. I barely made it out of high school. I am not that bright. But I have a burning desire because of what God has done for me. And I was a Christian longer before I understood all these things, understood the depth of God's word, than I have since I've studied, which has only been about 10 years ago I really studied this. So what, what, what makes me do it? It's only because God brought me to the depth of almost dying. And then he said, no, I have something better for you. And I didn't really want to do it. I told you that story. Do you have to get to that point? I'm just, being, I'm just trying to show you that whatever God has for you to do, just please do it. It doesn't mean that you have to know scripture as well or you have to, like I'm not a man given the hospitality or cooking or anything else. I don't know a lot of things that people do. I could never be a pastor. I don't have the heart to be a pastor. But that's not my job. But if a pastor's called to be a pastor, he better do it well. And you know what's good? He doesn't have to worry about trying so hard. God will give all he needs is the will and to show up for work. It's on the job training. Amen. So go out and do God's will and understand the less you know, the more you are so thankful for the little nuggets that he gives you to even begin to do what he has for you to do here. And what did Jesus, last point, what did Jesus say about all of us as compared to him? That's right. That's exactly the answer I'm looking for. Say it again. Greater works will you do than I ever did. Basic, right? That sounds crazy. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>